Welcome back to episode number 230 of the Dust Safety Science Podcast. This is a podcast for building a global community around process safety and industries handling combustible dust. I'm your show host, Dr. Chris Cloney. Today's episode, we are back on the podcast, Bill Laternis, Manufacturing Safety Senior Safety Advisor at BC Forest Safety Council. I'll give Bill once, uh, once he welcomes himself to tell me if I added too many safeties in this title, because I think I did. And today we are talking about building a culture of safety. And this is actually going to be a two-part episode. First, talking about companies and, and users and sort of at the operations level. And then the second episode, we're going to come back and talk about associations, industry groups, how they can also build a culture of safety or help to drive companies that they're working with to be safer as well. And in the preamble, in the pre-discussion I have with Bill, he even talked about if we're using the word culture correctly here, if there's some other aspects we should be looking at. So we may even change the title of this podcast episode when we get into it. That's what the discussion's here for today. So Bill has over 30 years experience in forest product operations, um, worked with many, many industries uh, in his various roles, including consulting and now advisory roles within different sectors. Bill, can I just get you to go through as a reminder what your role is today, what you do, and maybe your title? Because I think I said too many safeties, unless it does have two safeties in the first of it. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. Well, my title is Senior Safety Advisor Manufacturing. And my role is I'm responsible for our Health and Safety Association for Wood Products Manufacturing and Wood Pellet uh, Producers in BC. So I support health and safety for these two sectors uh, as the uh, the Health and Safety Association. I manage the Health and Safety Association activities. Perfect. Yeah. Thank you for clarifying that. Senior Safety Advisor of Manufacturing or Manufacturing BC Forest Safety Council. We last had Bill on the podcast back in episode 217, talking about the audit processes that himself and other members in British Columbia use for combustible dust. And after that episode, Bill and I had a really engaging conversation about safety culture. And in particular, we were talking about how the groups out in British Columbia, like the Woodpell Association of Canada, BC Forest Safety Council, you know, university groups, WorkSafe BC, other organizations, really seem to be doing a really good job working together to drive safety across the different industries that are working out there. And I asked him how they do that. And he started talking about some really important aspects of, again, what I'll call a culture of safety or safety culture here an association level, things like not competing on safety, how to run effective products and programs together, getting and maintaining buy-in. And we had discussed and, and thought it was a good idea to come back on the podcast and cover this topic in more depth. First, again, we'll talk about companies, experience with end users, and operations side that Bill has, and then we'll come back and talk about, okay, how do we support these industries with industry associations or user groups or industry groups and the like. Bill, I think before we jump into the outline for today, in your, your words, what is safety culture, culture of safety? You can even talk about if you think we should be using that word. Um, and why is it important at the end of the day for industries that you work with? For myself, personally, safety culture at an operational level, uh, my definition is engaged workers that are going to do the right thing at the right time without being told. You know, I used engage there. And when I tend to think of culture, I tend to think about in employee engagement. And, and if your employees are engaged at multiple levels of their various different responsibilities, I believe that's what's creating a good safety culture. Yeah. And that was the kind of the thing we had talked about before recording was this, that it comes down to 
employee engagement, we're having an engaged workforce as the driving horse. And I don't know if, if culture builds engagement or engagement builds culture. Those are some of the discussions that we got into. So in today's episode, I want to talk about what challenges come up in trying to improve this culture of safety or employee engagement. Um, any specific challenges that come up through Bill's experience in woodworking, wood processing, lumber mills, those type of industries that he has a lot of work with in British Columbia, although you know he's worked with a lot of other industries as well. What companies should do first? How to handle lack of leadership buy-in if they don't have buy-in for driving a, a safety program? You know what, what happens then? Do we just scrap it and say, okay, well, we're going to be unsafe or is there ways to drive without leadership buy-in? Any other lessons that Bill's learned throughout his experience working with industries in British Columbia? We talked a bit about what your, you know, your definition of safety culture is, which is employees' workforce and knows to do the right thing at the right time without being told. What are some challenges then that come up for companies that are trying to actually get that to happen? You know, this is a very timely topic, and it's a topic that I've been seeing out there for a couple of years now that uh, most of the operations I go to are trying to improve their employee engagement at, at multiple levels. But when you look at the challenges, you know, an example is we have some tough times with the market and what's going on in BC with uh, forest products manufacturing. And so when you're thinking of working on employee engagement, sometimes it's, it's tough to get the people together as a group to work on that topic. And even even if it's sort of in-house or off-site or with a third-party support, is uh, the perception around, well, we can't do that right now because it's now's not the right time. You know, we have to keep our head down and keep production going and we can't free anybody up because we have labor shortages. So even though companies are are trying to improve their, their safety culture or their employee engagement, I think they sometimes are held back because of the what's happening at the time, you know, and it could be market, it could be labor or shortages. There's any number of things that stop uh, an operation from freeing up employees to, to make improvements to this. Yeah, and do you see this as like a separate thing is like, okay, we're going to go off and work on our employee engagement specifically on safety or our safety culture, or is it like it really should be coupled in with, our employee engagement for performance culture and, you know, actually operations. And are they, are they separate conversations where we got to step aside and say, okay, let's talk about safety and make a plan here. Or is it, because you, you mentioned, you know, a lot of companies are trying to effectively move forward in this today. I would think that some of them are looking for a safety culture and some are also looking for improved operations and, and other things. Are they different discussions or are they part of the sort of one, one discussion? They're they're different, but they are part of one discussion in that in order to make any of that happen, you need to be able to create the common vision for everybody, for all the employees in an organization, so that they all are working towards the same results, regardless if it's performance or safety. You know, when 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 I say safety culture is employees doing the right thing at the right time without being told. That means they need to understand their responsibilities of what they're supposed to be doing. That takes time and effort to to explain to a new employee what their responsibilities are. And it can be as simple as a as a cleanup employee who's usually the the lowest person on the seniority list or or the, the group of the lowest employees on the seniority list in on graveyard shift. 
cleaning up the combustible dust while the mill shut down, knowing that he's making a difference in that if he cleans it up properly and safely, he improves the safety for all the employees. And he does it without having to be sort of told every time he turns around, clean up that pile, clean up this pile. He just has been instructed well to understand this is what he needs to do. Yeah, it's a really great point. And I mean, with our team, we do have a list of responsibilities. I'll, I'll, just, I'll just share them because it might be instructive. It's our responsibility is first to the communities and families of people that are suffering loss from dust explosions. After that, it's the, you know, the workers and companies that are handling combustible dust. After that, it's the, you know, the member companies and the people that actually pay us at the end of the day. And then I'm actually forgetting, and I should have pulled it up. <laughs> there's one in the middle after that, and then there's ourselves. Um, so that's like when we got to make a decision on on different material, that's the the rubric that we do it on. And an example that came up recently is we had a webinar presentation that had brought up some information about survivors from you know a, a dust explosion incident and people that were directly involved in the ground that may have been hurt emotionally and, and physically from this. And using this sort of rubric to say these are our responsibilities and the order in which they matter we were able to quickly say, okay, well, our concern is with those families that suffer loss first. And we were able to quickly just decide, okay, well, we, we, we got to scrap this, even though it's has, you know, repercussions for profit as repercussions for ourselves, repercussions for our member companies. It's like, it's not respectful of the type of responsibilities that we have. So the point that I, the reason I brought that list up was not to tote that our responsibilities are good or, or whatever. But the point that I wanted to say was, the part about getting them across to workers and even our team. And a quote that really stuck with me was when you're sick of saying them, people are just starting to hear them. <laughs> so I run through that list and, and, you know, mission, vision, values list all the time. My team, it's like when you're just at the point where you're both sick of saying something, you know, our, our mission is one year, zero fatalities worldwide from combustible dust. When I'm sick of saying that people are probably just starting to hear it. Is starting to sink in. So I don't know if that's a tool that might be effective to somebody who's listening to this. Like if you're trying to get that message across to your team and you feel like you're sick of saying it, keep saying it because that's just the point when they're starting to hear it at the end of the day. Um, I don't know if you had any stories like that or any comments about um, trying to drive some of these responsibilities or vision or values in with team members and, and get them to get buy-in on them. Uh, yeah, and I think you, you you made a good point there, and there's two good points there. The first is you, you can't just say it once on an orientation and expect people to understand that's what they need to do. We, we have a very strict uh, orientation process for new employees in BC, and they have 13 different items that have to be reviewed with them before they start work. And companies sometimes will, will rush through those items and then throw the employee out there and then rely on peer-to-peer -peer training to get the employee up to speed. It takes effort to get employees to understand really what their responsibilities are. And your message has to be all-encompassing. You know, you talk about going beyond the activities of your workers to talk about taking care of the the people um, from a dust explosion and and how important that is. And so when we talk about improving the safety culture or engagement of an employee at a, at a business, you need to be also including in your narrative the fact that you need to be looking out for each other and not just yourself. And so when that cleanup employee is cleaning up that pile of dust, yes, it's a, that's his job, that's his responsibility, 
but he also knows in the back of his mind that he's not just doing this for himself because that's his responsibility, but he's doing it because that helps protect fellow employees. He's watching their back is what he's doing. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And we had pulled through a couple of challenges here already, things like external factors. So profit margins, profit compression, external factors in industry that are impacting results our company is seeing. I mean, that that certainly plays into the challenge here for for driving employee engagement. Lack of just time capacity, not having the time to do it, needing to get multiple people in a single room to discuss and implement solutions. Are there any, any other challenges specific? I think I'm thinking two areas. One, wood and wood processing. You mentioned some challenges, external factors in British Columbia. But that's sort of one, any additional challenges there. And then number two is companies that are, are handling combustible dust. Like I'm picturing that um, employee that's doing housekeeping efforts. If they're not having that training and awareness of the hazards of combustible dust, and it just seems like a make work activity, well, you know, there's going to be a, a challenge. You need to train on the hazards so that they can understand and evaluate the impact that they're having by the job that they're doing. That might be a challenge specific with combustible dust. Any other challenges you see that come up in woodworking or in combustible dust in general? Well, one basic one that you know people might have on their radar is just the fact that in a lot of operations, in production operations, you you run different shifts. So you'll run a day shift, an afternoon shift, and a graveyard shift. There's lots of helpers around on day shift. There's all sorts of people that'll tell you what you need to be doing. Afternoon shift, there's there's fewer, maybe not as many as day shift, but then you go to graveyard shift. And, you know, I'm going to use the example of the cleanup employee, low run on the totem pole, works a steady graveyard shift throughout the week. And sometimes there's only one person there supervising the crew, and they might not even be a formal supervisor. They might be a charge hand. So you could end up just by virtue of what shift you're working different levels of support to understand your responsibilities or to be engaged or have the ability to talk to a safety committee member about an issue. So I think people have to understand that everything's not the same on all shifts. That is a great point because I've never crunched the numbers myself, but just anecdotally thinking back to the large loss instance I know of, many of them are in the evening or early morning or overnight. Which kind of seems strange because that's almost lauded as a, I won't, I won't name any specific reports, but I think some specifically that's like, that was like a success or, a, you know, a good thing. Like could have been 60 people in the plant, but there's only 12. <laughs> but what if that's not by luck? <laughs> what if that's actually a causal factor of, of these type of incidents happening? And I'm, I'm, my guess is it probably is. So just again, qualitatively, anecdotally, I'm, I'm thinking there's quite a few instances where early morning shifts before work first arrives and you're doing restarts from the night before or restarts from cleanups from the night before is always a challenging area. And then we do seem to have evening and, and nighttime explosions. You don't see a ton during normal operations in the middle of the day when everyone's there. I mean, I'm sure there are, but just anecdotally, yeah, I, I never thought about that. It sounds like there could be some challenges in those other shifts. Yeah, in our manufacturing audit, the auditors are required to spend a minimum of four hours on graveyard and afternoon and Saturday shifts. So it, it's quite an ordeal to perform those audits. It's gonna, I was going to say, it sounds like a make-work project, but actually it's important. <laughs> That's what we want to drive, right? <laughs> well, 
we keep uh, statistics, and uh, surprisingly, a lot of our major issues are found on graveyard shifts. And, yeah, I'll give you a good example. There was an employee, uh, an electrical employee that knows better, opens up a, a motor control circuit uh, panel and hits it with a with an air wand and to clean it out of dust, and it creates this big, huge cloud of dust. And and you know the auditor's standing there saying, "Wait, hold on a sec," you know, like what are you doing? <laughs> and yeah. But they never would have done that on day shift. Like you say, you know, just the lack of people being around to support people to do their job properly. Yeah, I think makes it difficult sometimes to do the right thing. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I kind of pulled out two extra ones. One was the awareness piece. If you're not aware of the the hazards, the, you know, the potential likelihood, the severity that could come out of a type of incident. And that's not unique to combustible dust is any incident that's low frequency and, and higher severity. We tend to minimize the, the actual risk involved. But if you're not aware and we can't drive that, that perception of vulnerability in place, then that's going to feed into challenges in, in driving safety culture. And, and, and more importantly, I'm trying to use your word of engaged workforce more than safety culture here. <laughs> but it, that's, a, that's one thing. Yeah. Um, different shifts, certainly for the type of facilities that are generally handling combustible dust. That could certainly be a, a challenge. Another one I think comes up on the awareness side is is just fires. So we do see a lot of incidents that occur from a failure to recognize a fire or a failure to clean it up properly without escalating it to an incident or a failure to do a, a startup review and make sure it's all cleaned out before starting up and, and causing an incident. And that's an area that we've actually seen. One, it's like half the injuries and fatalities that happen are, are from one of those three scenarios. But two, nobody's really kind of stood up and said, this this is a big problem and it needs to be fixed. There's no fire firefighting guide, but there's very limited information in, say, NFPA standards or other standards on, on this topic. So there's an area where your safety culture may be deficient in recognizing, responding to, and recovering from a fire it's deficient because of the awareness of the whole global community is quite low on on that being an important topic and then also how to even go about solving that topic once you say yep that is that is i mean the most common guidance is okay create a, a fire response plan <laughs> and and that's good to have in a standard but without instruction on, on what should be in that fire response plan you know you're gonna leave companies without being able to develop safe work plans on their own a lot of the times before we go into some of the solutions anything else you see as a challenge that comes up here bill no, I think we're hitting most of the, the topics and each operation is a little bit different on, on their ability to get their workers engaged. Sometimes it's just the the overall general feeling that workers have towards others or uh, they're being led down a different direction for other reasons. So, yeah. Yeah, it can be hard. And I think that's kind of where, well, we're probably getting into this in the next, the next episode, which will end up coming out next week. But um, having an industry association can be a driving force for trying to improve uh, employee engagement uh, and actually getting a culture within that industry association that can drive that as well, which I, I think is a really important topic and something that I've seen come out of British Columbia with BC4 Safety Council and other groups there as sort of like a model that, that I want to borrow and use in other industries. But we'll get into that in the other, the other podcast. Um, we talk about some of the challenges. I mean, if a company's just starting from scratch today and, and you must come across these companies that are asking you, hey, Bill, like, you know, what what do we do here to improve employee engagement, um, to improve safety? 
what are the you know step what's step one two and three of the the 25 steps they got to take or what are some of the first things that they got to do to start to wrap their heads around this i think they need to understand first and foremost that it's going to take some effort to work on employee engagement it's not going to happen on its own and so the effort is going to involve all levels of your organization or, or the operation. Uh, you can't just cast the safety resource or a supervisor and say, okay, I want you to improve the safety culture. Everybody needs to be part of that discussion and part of that, that I'd say, journey to engage employees. They have to have the resources to do that. And, you know, I'll give you a good example of what we did three or two workshops last week. And some companies, said, yes, I'm going to send an employee to that bow tie that you're doing. It's important, even though it's a struggle for us to send them during this time because of the perception of sending people away when we're struggling. And then other companies saying, I just can't send anybody because we don't have the ability to do that. And the perception's all bad. So they just didn't send anybody. So sometimes companies have to think of innovative ways to make sure that they can provide the resources and the time for their employees to to learn and be engaged. Yeah, it comes down to the same thing, right? And I might adjust your definition a bit. The right thing at the right time without being forced to <laughs> is, is sort of another yeah. version of that. I think probably more at industry level. Like, yeah, I mean, sure, we might be able to get people to do the right thing at the right time if we go out and, and hire 10 times more inspectors and, and fine everyone up and down the the, the street. But um, that's, that's, well, that's a whole carrot and horse discussion, I guess, <laughs> and which one's more effective at the end of the day over the long term. Yeah, really, really interesting. Yeah, there was one company that, in my mind, had the best safety culture or employee engagement that I've ever seen. And, and you know, they involved key people in their operation, and they weren't just safety committee members. They were They were just key people that they felt were going to be able to help them improve things and they 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 called them safety champions and they gave them some really good education and training and support and i think it had a a lot of impact on getting the employees to sort of lift their heads up and say oh well the company actually is serious about this that they've they've designated somebody to to help with everybody else's efforts to engage us and then they they encouraged the employees to identify issues when they see them. And then they they actually fixed the safety issues that people were, were identifying. They didn't just sort of put them on a list that disappeared and never got fixed. And, you know, there was one new worker that I was talking to and they were a first aid attendant and that's why they were hired, but they had never had experience in the operation or the activities that they were they were exposed to and this was like their first week of work and they before i had a chat with them they came up to the lunchroom where i was and they they sat down in front of the computer and they they put their observation that they had uh, into the computer so it was tracked and it was a, a broken weld on a railing for the stairwell well and then i had a quick chat with this employee and and they said uh, they were just so happy that they had the ability and support to immediately report into this company's system the broken weld on the handrail and knowing that it was going to be tracked and addressed quickly. 
And when I was back the next day, I asked the employee, did it get fixed? And they said, yeah, it got fixed immediately. And when a company is willing to do things like that, they actually are the ones that are changing the culture and the engagement of the employees in a good way. Yeah, I love that. I mean, I, I wrote down three pieces here. You need resources, champions, lead team. So we'll say four pieces, team, and then to drive real, real action, real change. If I can give an example from my own history here, prior to, to what I'm doing now, prior to my PhD, I, was, I had an office job and we, had, we got purchased by a, a large company, a multinational company, and, and so we were in transition. And so we rolled out this really, ro- we'll call it robust, but cumbersome might be a better word, like safety program for offices. And we were doing observations, and we were do- but it was like really, it felt really surface level at the time. Like we weren't doing any, we weren't moving the noodle on safety. So we were, we were doing a lot of, you know, training and, and checking boxes and that sort of stuff. And, and once somebody <laughs> took, it actually took one person, it was my office mate, to sit down and, and think about this and, and go like, what? what is the problem? Like, what are we, what are we really, what's the biggest risk we have here? And at the end of the day, after six months of doing all this stuff, he sort of realized, came in one day and said, defibrillators, like <laughs> her whole office is, is above the age of uh, average age, probably 47 and lo- you know, half the office, 20 or 30 people were, were quite a bit older. Most of us had PhDs and master's degrees and stuff. So we've been sitting for a long time. <laughs> it's it like, yeah, someone going to a heart attack at the office is really the highest risk thing that we have here. And and no one had ever thought. And you know what the worst part was, Bill? You put it in as a safety observation. It took like two years to get on-site defibrillators, although that was the biggest risk we had in terms of the severity that could happen. I mean, we did, we, you know, we did lifting and, and slip strips and falls training and, and all sorts of stuff like that. But then the day when it really mattered about making a change that could actually save somebody's life, it was quite slow to get that real impact. I'm sure you've seen that in other uh, other non-office type settings with your work where it's just like, yeah, the, the information comes in, it gets logged, and then it doesn't actually drive change. And and that's just going to kill the system, right? That same employee came in next day and that that weld's not fixing that stairs. And then a week later, it's not fixing the stairs. And then you know two months later, it's not fixing the stairs. What are the chances that they're going to actually log another safety observation in the future? Yeah, I I had experience in that when I was consulting, going out to operations and auditing their safety management systems. And I would talk to a lot of employees, but I would also talk to a lot of mobile equipment operators. And, you know, one of the things you're looking at is their pre-trips. And I can tell you right now, in all the businesses that I went to in over, well, I'm still going out there 15 years now, the number one reason why an employee doesn't fill out his pre-trip for his forklift is they say nobody reads it. I put something's wrong down on there and it never gets fixed. So they just stop doing them. And then nobody even comes up and talks to them about why they're not doing them. So you think of something as simple as when you get into a forklift, you want to check it out to make it safe to use. And employees aren't bothering to fill out the paperwork to to show that they've done that because nobody's reading it. And and of course, you're not going to have a good safety course uh, culture. You know, where's the engagement with the employees on that? Well, I'll add I'll add one more insidious thing to that, um, and that's the the time that the pre trip could have saved something from happening, and yeah. it doesn't. And then really coming down that employee for not doing their pre trip that nobody reads, <laughs> and I've I've seen that case where even you know I, I have friends back home worked at worked in plastic factory there, and it's like it really was scolded for a, a very common normal work activity 
that sure this you know somewhere there's a safety thing that says you shouldn't do that but normal work process was to avoid doing that as soon as you start disciplining people against safety processes that aren't useful don't drive real change there's nothing more insidious to a safety program than than adding that on top yeah but but I'll also talk about the the other end of the spectrum when you know I had an operation that was struggling to get their forklift drivers to to do their pre-trips, the it was actually a quality control supervisor. It wasn't even the, the mobile equipment supervisor. Took it upon himself that every time he walked from the sawmill to the planer to do some quality checks, he would call over the forklifts that were nearest to him and he'd ask them to show him their, their pre-trips. And over a short period of time, all of the forklifts understood that when this person was walking through the yard, they were going to drive over and show them that they'd done their pre-trips. And they started doing that. And they also started telling me, the quality control supervisor, that my light's not working. It's day shift. They need to get it fixed before afternoon shift because they use that forklift for an afternoon shift. And he took it upon himself to make sure it got fixed. So not only was he confirming that they were doing their, their pre-trips, but he was also helping the forklift drivers get things fixed on their forklift. So so this is, I think, a good example of how when you have various people in the operation that are all going in the same direction, supporting good activities, and so employees start to, to make make it fun that they've done their pre-trips, now all of a sudden you, you stop the issue of people not doing their pre-trips. Yeah, really great example. And that ties into kind of the last piece I had wanted to chat about here was on the leadership side. It's a lot of time when you see, you know, discussions around safety culture. So, you know, you hear like it's got to start at the top and you need leadership buy-in and, and without that, it's not going to go anywhere. And, and the challenge that I have with that is, well, we're, we're trying to, you know, stop people from dying from dust explosions. <laughs> it, it turns out that not every site out there that handles combustible dust have I been able to convince the leadership to improve safety culture yet. Uh, we're still working on it. So what tools, you know, uh, solutions, ideas, concepts do we have that can provide with individual workers, health and safety managers to start to improve employee engagement, start to improve safety culture before leadership buying pieces established. And you just gave a really good example, you know, that worker taking on itself to start to be involved and communicate on those pre-trips and employees, you know, the forklift drivers going ahead and, and, and doing that. And over time, it grew to almost a pre-warning system where they, they could actually get things. And it's, that's one of the solutions there. It's like, you know, being the change that you want to actually see happen. Any other comments or thoughts around this? What do you do when you don't have leadership buy-in? I think, you know, next week we'll talk a bit more about how we can get leadership buy-in, but what do the what do the workers operation side folks do if it's not really there today? Well, I think we need to maybe change our thoughts a little bit on leadership and the fact that it has to come from the CEO or the senior leadership first. And understand that leadership is at all levels of your operation, even down to the newest employee. If you empower your workers to be leaders and empower a worker that's maybe a new employee who who understands his responsibility, who's working beside somebody else that maybe even had been the one that trained this employees, but is doing something wrong. He's being a leader when he stops that employee before he hurts himself. So we have to create create the leadership buy-in at all levels and not just think that it has to be a mission statement or or 
uh, direction from senior leaders coming down the ranks to finally produce results. Results can be produced at all levels if we treat all employees as leaders. Yeah, really great viewpoint. And I actually am thinking like, I mean, taking this on as an individual worker, as an individual contributor, is actually a great way to move up ranks through the company. Somebody that like, if you can, if you can increase employee engagement and also be creative about new solutions to be able to do that, you're going to have a more productive workforce. You're going to have more a safer workforce. That's actually, if you take it upon yourself to start doing those things, you may find. I'm thinking back to some of the companies I've been a part of over the years. At least, yeah, at least two of them. The the president at the time that I was part of those companies started off floor level and through safety roles and taking on responsibility. It wasn't really theirs to take on, but uh, as you know, not necessarily for the purpose of moving up through the ranks in that company, but for the purpose of, of making facilities safer, uh, they actually rose up through the, the ranks and were the presidents by the time I was there as that safety role. So I, there's probably something in there to say like, this is good for you as a safety individual. It's also good for your, your career progression to be able to take a, a note here and try to improve things on the, on the employee engagement side. It's very fulfilling, I think, to a person if they're able to help other workers around them to not hurt themselves. You know, it, it is fulfilling to do that. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. And that's, that's, I hope this podcast episode is helpful for folks to think about some ideas, how they can be, um, how they can improve, you know, safety culture, employee engagement at their site. I can't even stop saying the word, Bill. I'm trying my best, <laughs> but, uh, you know, improving employee engagement at their site so that we can have safer facilities that are, you know, taking in feedback from various places and, and moving that into making change. Uh, before we close out this week's episode on this topic of improving employee engagement and lessons for companies, any other lessons or anything, any takeaways from your work in this area that you think we should leave companies off with? Keep up the work on this. Don't let conditions, short-term conditions, take you away from the importance of engaging your workforce. And, and you've already mentioned it, I think, more than once, Chris, that the employee engagement is not just helping safety culture. It's going to be, it's going to help your organization in everything that they do. Uh, so it, it's a worthwhile thing to always keep front and center and always be trying to improve it. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Okay, well, I want to say thank you again for coming on the podcast, Bill. We're going to um, record a second interview again on this, you know, employee engagement, culture of safety considerations. And in this time, which we're going to release next week, we're going to be discussing about associations, industry groups, user groups, how they can be taking some of these concepts and applying them to support industries and operators that are handling combustible dust. So I want to say thank you, Bill, for coming on this week and look forward to chatting again next week on the podcast. Thanks, Chris. I enjoyed it. Thanks, Bill. So you've been listening to myself, Dr. Chris Cloney and Bill Laternis. We've been talking about building a culture of safety Increasing employee engagement, which uh, we discussed this maybe a better term for, for this in the podcast episode. And we've been talking about lessons for companies. So in particular, we talked through you know, a definition of safety culture and the definition that Bill proposed was an engaged workforce that's able and um, that does the right thing at the right time without being told to or even without being forced to is another way to look at that. 
And we talked about some challenges here, you know, external factors, profit margins, ability to keep operations moving and keep, um, you know, the facility running, lack of time capacity, difficulty in getting the people all in one room to be able to figure this stuff out. We talked about things particular to combustible dust, like just lack of awareness of the potential likelihood and severity of what could occur. If you don't, you know, you don't see it as a, a high-risk activity, then there's a chance that there's not going to be a perception of requiring safety around that activity. We talk about shift times, time of day, daytime versus evening versus night, and how those have different profiles for what might be normal and abnormal work, different profiles for what kind of activities might be uh, deemed acceptable. And if you looked at this as a safety culture you know, perspective, you put that lens on it, deemed acceptable would actually, I think, be quite similar day and night. But if you don't have that well-established, then you may see things that are happening at nighttime that would um, not happen in the day because of, of that lack of visibility. And we talked about some other things around you know, fires and, and other challenges that we've seen with combustible dust as well. We talked through some of the solutions. One, you know, awareness increasing activities is certainly one. Giving employees the tools to communicate with each other, having the resources and the capacity, acknowledging that's going to take work to make this happen, establishing safety champions, training them, giving them uh, career progression roles, giving them ways to improve their contribution to the team, involving other team members. At the end of the day, using it to drive real action. Nothing is going to deflate a program or employee engagement as much as not doing anything on the material that's put in. And then even so, you know, um, reprimanding and repercussioning on stuff that's not done, that's also not acted on is, is another great way if you really want to you know, halt the store stuff in its tracks. We talked about some guidelines, some things that employees can do today, uh, challenges with what do we do if we don't have leadership buy-in. And Bill made some really good points here. It's really, it needs a, a perception shift from being a top-down thing to an everybody-can-contribute type of idea. We talked about some really good examples here of people taking it upon themselves to become the safety champions. How this is probably a good idea for your career progression, again. And you know, ways to be creative, make it fun, get employees engaged. You're going to see that impact both the bottom line at the facility in terms of operations and production, but also the the potential impacts from safety incidents and safety accidents that might occur on site. So again, next week on the podcast, we're going to come back and talk about this topic again and talk about associations and the impact that they can have on improving, you know, this culture of safety and this employee engagement for the industries and facilities that they're working with and supporting with their work. So as always, I want to say thank you for listening to the podcast. Hope you have a safe and productive week ahead. I appreciate everything you're doing in the industry's handling combustible dust to make them safer with the work they do with there every day. We appreciate it. 